Welcome, guys, back to the Grateful Living Podcast. Today, I'm thankful to have Ruben Harris with me today. Ruben is the CEO at Career Karma, a service that helps people find job training programs online through boot camps and trading schools. The app also offers free coaching, peer mentorship, and allows you to connect with current students and alumni to find your ideal program and get prepared for admission. Ruben, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show, man. I appreciate it. So uh, take us back to the beginning, you know, where you grew up, your family situation, what type of kid you were, things like that. Yeah, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I was born in California, moved to Atlanta when I was one. I've been playing the cello since I was four years old. Um, uh, as a classical musician, uh, I met a lot of business people. Um, so I always understood the dynamic between the art world and the business world. Also, growing up in Atlanta, I didn't realize that Black people were a minority. So I was always like proud to be Black because like that was just, I grew up in Wakanda pretty much. <laughs> um, and then also my um, my parents are, um, they, we speak Spanish at home. So I grew up speaking Spanish. So I was like this Spanish speaking Black kid in Atlanta that was like at the center of, 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 of like, music and business and so i thought that was like a super a super cool dynamic to be around uh growing up and um and i was also a montessori kid and so i was taught to have a very deep sense of understanding of a, of of being an individual but also responsibility for my community and, and helping people um and then i also went to religious school my whole life so I had a really uh, deep understanding that like life isn't just about material things. It's about spiritual things and about purpose and like a big focus on what really matters here on this earth. Um, and so um, that's, uh, I would say that's probably the biggest reason why I have a lot of like tenacity and resilience is because um I do believe that everything happens for a reason. And so I just kind of like move forward where like if things don't work out, um, that's just kind of like God's compass and guiding me in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned uh, playing the cello. Who, uh, how'd you get into that? Uh, well, my sister, uh, I mean, my mother, She um, she's the one who got me into music. Um, and so when you think about that, um, um, that was at the Montessori school. There was a, child, a violin teacher at the time. So my mother asked if that violin teacher actually teaches cello because she wanted me to learn cello. Um, and she did. And so that ended up being my instrument. So it was all shout out to my mother. Yeah. How did you, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you dealt with this, but sometimes, uh, you know, especially growing up, you know, guys especially can make fun of other other guys for doing mm -hmm. like stuff that's soft. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. did you, did you face that? And uh... for sure, for sure. I faced that a lot. Um, a lot of people making fun of the cello, uh, try to beat you up just cause you play the cello, uh, like mock you cause you're carrying a cello on your back and like make jokes about like how you about to blast off. Cause it looks like you got a rocket on your back or you look like a Ninja turtle. Cause you got like a big old shell on your back. Like, yeah, oh, I dealt with all of that, especially being in Atlanta, like people, that's like part of the culture. Um, 
I wouldn't say that's a good part of the culture, but just like heckling and making jokes at each other. Yeah. But that also taught me how to take the power away from that. Right. Where like, if people are just trying to make fun at you of you and like joke on you, just, just laugh with them and also like make it cool. Right. So like, how do I make cello cool? And part of the way that I made cello cool was using the cello to get into the studios of the artists that everybody wanted to be cool with. People like Beethoven that did records with Gucci Man. I mean, he played music in the church, but he and I did records together. And then I did works with uh, Sounds, who was the producer for Justin Bieber and Kelly Rowland and um, Travis Porter and Two Chainz, a bunch of other people. So like Chance the Rapper. So we I would do records with Sounds. So then people were like, oh, wow, like this cello thing can get you into different worlds. And then I did records with Maddie P. So we did things with like Lloyd, the artist from Lloyd was was bigger. And, and so like stuff like that. So I was able to like really get into these worlds to understand how that worked, which is what led me into the into the club world uh, with, um, I worked at a club called Studio 72. Um, I had a company that I was running, uh, throwing parties, which, uh, gave me a lot of notoriety um, in Atlanta. Um, just organizing a thousand to 2000 person events with the biggest celebrities. We had Usher, we had Floyd Mayweather, we had um, we had Jay-Z himself. We had everybody you can imagine, Mariah Carey, all came to our, our events. Um, and so that that eliminated any anything that people said about cello because now, now it's a cool thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, so, you know, in your early days, was it, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, was it, you know, when you were doing concerts and things like that, was the audience mostly white? Uh, for cello, yeah. For cello, yeah. How did you, uh, how did you, how did you balance that and not feel self-conscious or, or, or I guess, what did you learn from that? Man, I, I, I never really, like, faced a lot of like insecurity with the black and white thing, to be honest with you. I think part of it is because since I was already around black people most of the time during the day, but then when I play music and I'm playing around white people, it was just like, it's like part of my day where like, I'm, let me play with the white people now. And I also would meet other like black people that were in music as well. But to your point, it wasn't, it was definitely not that, that many, it was mostly white people, but I never, I don't see in black and white. I just see people, you know, yeah, I yeah. just see, I just see other talented artists, um, see other Asians, other people that are like Indians, other people that are just like, we just, we just play music together. We just yeah. kick it. Yeah, and yeah. I would say the, the differences that I would pay attention to were less about race and more about styles of music. So how do you take a classical instrument and play like Brazilian jazz and like like um, bossa nova music, right? Or how do you play things like Appalachian Trail, which is like Yo-Yo Ma's Appalachian Trail, or Obrigado Brazil album, or like how do you talk to a bass player that did the whole box suites on bass? Like that type of stuff is what I would pay attention to. And how do you mix like cello with ballet and like like what yo-yo ma do with the swan and that and the guy that was like doing the whole tutting and like dancing with it back when stop the yard was a big deal right so that's that's the type of 
stuff I paid attention to more, like how do you come up with unique ideas? Um, and that's when my, one of my good friends of mine, who's a very big artist now, his name is Kevin Alusla from Pentatonix. He was doing something weird. He's like, he's a Chinese speaking, Nigerian, cello playing beatboxing artist that everybody made fun of. That's now of five, what is it? He's, he's won three Grammys and two platinum albums in the last five years. Yeah, that's because he didn't box himself up, and people don't even know he plays saxophone too. So that's that's the type of people I was around. We just we celebrated our differences. We we encouraged people to be different. We didn't want people to be the same. That's awesome. You know, you you talked a little bit about you know a religious background. Uh, I'm curious. You know, a lot of people, especially kids that grow up in religious backgrounds, tend to lose uh, their connection to that religion just because often they feel like their parents force it on them or things of that nature. It seems like you've stuck um, and stayed close um, with your spiritual life. Can you talk about how maybe some of the things your parents did right in terms of that and how maybe you didn't feel forced? Yeah. I mean, there's a very famous verse in Proverbs that says like train the child in the way that they should go and they never depart from it. I'll say my parents very, much emphasized that growing up and like they taught me all the how to memorize a lot of bible verses which like you could see that as like why is he memorizing bible verses but that actually it was less about just memorize it was definitely important to memorize bible verses but that also helped me memorize music right that helped me with public speaking that helped me with confidence by right? being on stage and, and presenting and things like that so i would say really understanding like growing up with wisdom and stature and favor with 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 god and men was and, and women is very important and so um to be very clear far from perfect and i definitely did go astray um for probably most of my like high school college years and until like i, I faced like a moment of reckoning where i um I was reminded of the fact that the only reason I'm alive is, is because of that spiritual connection. And so once I was reminded of that, I started like not just studying the religion that my parents gave me, but just every religion and why religion even is a thing, why spirit is even a thing. So like, even if people don't believe in God, like why do people believe in a higher power? Why are we here? You know? And so it just kind of led me on a search to really come up with what my what my own view of, of spirituality really is. And I'll say my parents, what I say my parents did right, if I was going to put it in a nutshell, is it's not necessarily tell me you have to believe this. You just have to be in a constant search of why we are here and what your purpose is and who your maker is. Right? Yeah. So... No, that's, that's good. You know, especially given what you do today. Um, and it sounds like you started businesses before a career karma, you know, was entrepreneurship something you were introduced to in, in your young years, you know, in high school or something like that, or it, when did it start to come onto the radar? Um, that's a good question. My, my parents were talking to me about it the other day. Um, I would say, 
they, they, they said, well, there's a lot of things. Like I used to, I, I used to, <laughs> very early on, I used to draw. I was really into like drawing things. Um, and I would like, like I, I like anime and a lot of things like that, but I used to draw these like monster pictures and I would try to sell them. I used to draw, like I, I did candy. I did the lawn, the landscaping business, but I'll say that the biggest, the first like business business, and I talked about this recently on radio, but I didn't mention this one was actually like that promotions business, starting the company to like uh, throw parties. So that was the first like major business that like made money. And then it was the media business focusing on, on podcasting. Um, and, and reaching people and giving ourselves a voice. And then I would say, um, I would say after that, that's when, um, that's when I um, started thinking about like starting my own tech driven business and venture back business and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I have it here. You went to Southern uh, Adventist university. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk to, talk to us about your, your high school process and, and, uh, choosing southern yeah it's a good it's a good question so i went to becker adventist school atlanta adventist academy i'm at southern adventist university um so yeah i grew up seventh day adventist um what's interesting about seventh day adventism is they're they focus on education um because there's a very unique relationship between education and work work is not just like something that you do to make money uh, it's more like it's part of how you serve the world it's like we're we're all given gifts right we're all like you and i we're all given gifts and there's a parable in matthew 24 that they talk about that we talk about a lot where it's like you shouldn't bury your talents and like and i'm not going to tell the whole story i mean i could tell the story high level high level i'll just tell you a story yeah high level um there's a man it's like it's like an ethos fable so i'll tell you so the man he has a vineyard he has three people that work for him on the vineyard he goes away for a long time he's like hey take care of these talents the talents is money back in the day when i come back like well i'll check in on it so he goes away comes back he goes to the first person he's like all right what'd you do with the talents and he's like well i went and i i bought this tree and the tree grew into a whole forest and it's born fruit and I sold it and I've, I've, I've 10 X your money. And then he goes, well done, my good and faithful servant. You can keep the money. Great. So then he goes to the next one. He's like, all right, so what'd you do with the, with the talents that I gave you? And he goes, well, you know, I knew that, um, you know, we had to, we had to, um, um, there's a lot of demand in the, in the neighborhood for like, um, some, some cheese to go with the, with the wine and the vineyard. So, you know, I, I created this whole cheese factory. And so I, I fibed next to your money. He was like, I'm just making up stuff. He's like, yeah, yeah. well done, my, well, well done, my good and faithful servant. You can keep the money. And he goes to the last one and he goes, what did you do with the talents that I gave you? And so he was like, well, master, I know that I really needed to protect these talents, right? So, and I didn't want nobody to rob you because you know, everybody's trying to rob you because security is a big deal over here. So I took the talents, I put it in a big metal box and I buried it and I protected it every single day while you were gone. And I got it right here for you. All the talents, safe and sound. And he, the, the owner of the vineyard goes like, you wicked servant, get out of my vineyard, right? And the, the moral of the story is like, 
don't bury your talent, right? Because you think that you're doing the right thing, but you're doing a disservice to humanity, putting it deep in the ground, you know? And so going back to like the whole advanced education, like you, you think deeply about like how, how do you develop skills that don't just make you money, but help you make the world a better place, which goes back to that Montessori education that we talked about before. And work is not just work in the workplace. It's work at home with your, your kids. It's work with your parents. It's making your bed in the morning. It's like you have a duty and a responsibility to society. And so I say all of that, not because I was paying attention to those things when I was in high school. I was a wild boy in high school. I didn't <laughs> have great GPA. I didn't have none of that. And honestly, I would have never went to college if it wasn't for my parents. The only reason I went to college is because my parents told me that like they would like support me if I go to college. And shout out to them. Yeah. And I think it was a good idea. And they, they encouraged me to go to a college at Southern MS University in Collegeville, Tennessee, that was not in Atlanta. Um, because it was it was just close enough to Atlanta to where I could still do what I was doing with the parties, but far enough to where there was no distractions, right? Your environment matters, your focus matters. And honestly, even if I did go to college in Atlanta, I probably would have never finished because I wasn't disciplined. So um, shout out to them. My, yeah, yeah. My, my, my SAT scores were trash, like <laughs> all of that. Yeah. So. so you mentioned it a couple times. Is is this um is it Woodla Woodlake Entertainment? Is this what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So like you, Woodlake Street Dreams. Yeah, all of that. Yep. So um talk to us about how you how you so this you started this in college? Yep. Uh, like how did, years old. Yeah, how did that how did that come about? Yeah, I met a guy named uh Jay and another guy named Lee. Um, early on through music. So I was doing music and um, there's a guy named Juice um, and he was making music um, and it, he was killing it like all in the Southeast and Tennessee and in a, a bunch of other places. Um, and this dude had a lot of talent. And so we were just talking about working on music together. And then Lee, he was doing, throwing parties with this guy named Dino from Metro Boys. Um, and then they were calling it Street Dreams. And they're from Woodlake, which is in New Jersey. They had come to Atlanta. And so um, we were just talking about, like he was talk teaching me about this whole promotion game and like how a lot of the promoters were making all this money um, and who the major players were out there. Um, and that's when I started learning more about DJs and how Atlanta became, and, and, and mixtapes and people like DJ Drama and infamous and, and a bunch of other like stuff related to like breaking artists and things like that. So that's when I met um, this guy named Chewy from VIP Nightlife. Um, and he's the one who gave me my opportunity to work at Studio 72, which led me to people like Benny, um, who was working with Alex Gitawan, who runs Compound and, and a bunch of other clubs, which is the same club as where Scooter Braun, who was Justin Bieber's manager, yep. he was throwing parties there around the same amount of time <laughs> before, and because that was his thing too. Yeah. And so that's, I was around those types of people early on. There was like Colby, uh, TK from, from, from Plush Blue. There was TK from, uh, uh, in, in, from I think Dream Team, 
Omar and Slim, they were all from Plus Blue. So we all started getting in this thing. And this was when MySpace was very big. And there was a guy named um, Prince from ATL Picks. And so I noticed that this guy, this was like, like when social media had just first started when uh, MySpace was a thing. Every time there was a party, he made sure that he had high quality pictures there. And he it was called atlpics.net. And the reason why he would do that is every day after the party, people that went to the party wanted to see their amazing pictures tagged with ATL Picks and uploaded as their profile picture for their MySpace. And this was also when Black Planet and Mijente were big. And Black Planet, for the people that don't know, is like the, they were the first social network to a million users before Facebook and MySpace, right? So like this was actually very early on and, and black planet's whole thing was um teaching people how to code without them even realizing that they're coding which is another conversation but the this is kind of like my exposure to technology early on and so what i made sure is i always made sure we had beautiful people at the parties we had the best pictures we had the best events so that we would go viral on myspace all the time our top eight was hot the right music was there um, and we created a network of other people in MySpace that had like hundreds of thousands of friends. So to the point where anytime we walked out in Atlanta, people recognized who we were and we would like buy out the homepage of MySpace. Like whenever there was like a big Floyd Mayweather party, we would buy out the homepage of MySpace and just like really dominate the scene because that's, that's, that's how everybody knew what was happening. Yeah. Then we started blowing up the events feature on MySpace and really telling people to go to the events. This was before Facebook had events and stuff like that. And so um, I actually was more bullish on MySpace before Facebook because Facebook was so private back in the day. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of like how we, how we got started early on. We had a street team, we had the graphic designers, all that type of stuff. So I, I learned a lot about distribution and radio and promotions and, and stuff like that. What what interested you about the business? Was it just, was it making the money, or what were you what was making you interested? Well, in Atlanta, the people that were inspiring to me were those people, right? It were it was other artists that were successful. It was promoters that were throwing parties. It was owners of the clubs. It was owners of the studios. Um, it was owners of the record labels. That's all I knew, right? Yeah. So if I wanted to move up into the in the hierarchy of music, a good entry point is probably clubs, right? And so it wasn't like, oh, like I want to go into clubs just because like it's cool, but like celebrity culture drives a lot of things in Atlanta, and what you see it drives a lot of things in Atlanta. So I was just like, let me let me figure out how I should get involved with that and so it's just it's just more like what i was exposed to but then once i started getting exposed to things like investment banking and tech and i was like wow like the music world and the tech world and the music world doesn't really have that much money in it the 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 promotion world doesn't really have that much money in it and i'm not saying i'm purely money driven but like even the sports world like you see the ball players you see the actors like it's not close to as big as the tech world. And I was like, yo, tech is the future. They're the ones that's really in charge. Um, I had been exposed to the finance world because at first, like when I was in college, everybody thought that like, you know, the finance world is going to be, those are the masters of the universe. 
But then I realized that the real players and the real people that are in charge are actually the um, the tech people. Yeah, yeah. You know, especially given what you do in the education field today, you know, do you have any advice for anyone on uh, college and, you know, maybe some of the things you did right or maybe some of the things you maybe didn't do right? Yeah, I think um, I think if you're going to go to college, make sure that you are clear that you are going to get a job that positions you to pay off your debt quickly um, because I don't think that college is going to completely go away, but all colleges are not made equal, just like all boot camps are not, are not made equal, right? So you want to, you want to do the cost benefit, do the cost benefit analysis. Um, with that said, I actually don't think that the purpose of college is to get people a job. I think the purpose of college is to teach you how to understand yourself better expose you to other people that can make your life better, help you understand how to start and finish something that is an extended period of time, and also how to be in a mix of, of people from different ages and perspectives and different timelines um, to, it's like a finishing school or like a leadership school. I think that's kind of like what, how I think about college. Um, I also think that you have to break your mindset of certificates and degrees getting you a job. Certificates and degrees don't get you jobs and neither does learning how to code. Right. Um, so understanding that like, if you're going to be, if you're going to be out here doing, um, doing anything, you have to focus on who you are and what you want to be known for and what you want to build so that whenever you're in a boot camp or college, you're building projects or working on getting to companies that can get you to that point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at, at this point, you know, I, I did some research and, and you, you know, you talked about it uh, on one of your other podcasts, but you know, you, you, I mean, I don't know if you want to characterize yourself as, as an alcoholic at some point during, I mean, maybe talk to us about, you know, you know, just your relationship with alcohol and, and, and things of that nature. Yeah. Um, I would say, I wouldn't call myself an alcoholic, but I would say that like in college you are dealing with, um, status games and trying to be cool right and trying to like be respected and so like your alcohol tolerance so how how much alcohol can you drink you know like can you can you drink 151 without cringing like (laughs) like and just like like just all that type of stuff just like just just going through that type of process and so i would say I did get into the habit of, because I was always throwing parties, you could call me an alcoholic because I was always drinking because I was like partying like every day of the week. But I wouldn't say I was alcoholic because it wasn't like I had a dependence on it. It was more like I was addicted to the thrill of being cool, right? I was addicted to the thrill of 
blacking out and being told how wild I was. Like, I thought I, I was invincible when I was 18. I still think that, like, I have a lot of power, and I, and I still think that, like, I have a lot of confidence, and, like, if I play my cards right, I can be unstoppable. But I also have done a lot of inner work to understand that, like, life can be taken away from you like this. Yeah. You know? And there's only a few things that you can really control, and one of those things is your health, you know? And so... Um, part of, part of like the, the alcohol stuff was, was more, it was more like on being cool, but also just like liquid courage, like, and to just be able to communicate with people better. Right. And it's going to sound a little weird. Sometimes it was more like just to come up with cool ideas and write and talk and like brainstorm um, kind of like how you would be in the studio smoking weed to yeah. come up with like a cool idea you know it's like I don't necessarily think so, so like the way that I was approaching like substances was not to be productive it was more like to be cool same thing with smoking and all that type of stuff it was to be cool but like as I started graduating into it, it started to be like more like less smoke weed and talk about the universe and why silence proves the existence of music, right? Like stuff like that. Yeah. And the, and I had this whole block. So any anyway, um, but going back to that like existential crisis that I ran into, like during my alcoholic blackout things where I didn't know what was going on. I would put myself in dangerous situations where I would almost lose my life in interactions with other people. Because you start getting aggressive, you start getting people's face, like unnecessary fighting, right? Unnecessary egos, right? And so over time, you realize you can't live life like that, fighting over stepping on someone else's shoe or whatever, right? That's just, people die for no reason, right? And I don't wanna die. I don't want other people to die, right? And so, um, long story short, I got into this accident where I was um, I was always drinking and driving. That was my thing too. So that's another thing. Like I'm literally driving this like vehicle that can kill people without knowing what's going on. Like that was my thing. I really enjoyed it when I was younger, and. I had this moment where I was drinking and driving. I fell asleep at the wheel. I ran into a power pole. I I I I, I crashed into a uh, uh, in in the total the 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 airbag deployed, um, to, and I came out with no scratches. And this wasn't the first accident I've been in. I've been in multiple accidents, either with myself or being in the car with someone else, just because I've always been around these reckless people when I was growing up. And I got arrested, I got four tickets, striking a fixed object, fail, failure to maintain lane, suspicion of DUI, um, and reckless driving. And the paramedics that came said, you must come from a praying family because you should have died tonight. And my father was like, why does God keep saving your life? And like that, that question, like rocked everything. and started made me think, I'm chosen. We're all chosen. We're all here for something. What are you doing? 
So I just decided to stop drinking. I stopped drinking, and I've been sober for over 10 years now. It'll be 11 years in May. Congratulations. And that was, everything just took off after that. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm curious. Um, first question, did you ever get close, or have you ever gotten close to, you know, going back? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, very early on, as soon as I... Um, as soon as I um, quit, um, I did have a tequila bottle. This was this was before Casamigos was a thing. I had um, I had a Patron bottle, and I was on my way to the studio, and my cousin Matthew saw it, and he he pulled me aside, and he grabbed the bottle, and he made me take the bottle and pour it down the drain and watch me do it. That moment, it was it was very weird, man. I think it's very similar to like writing something down. It's very different to actually grab the thing and do the thing versus just talk about it and. That that solidified it for me. That right there. Did you tell Did you tell Matthew beforehand that he knew that you were trying to get off, or? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. He well, just... he 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 knew like he knew that I had said it, but he kind of like was. He could see that it was it wasn't leading me in the right direction. Wow, that's awesome, on his part. You know, in a situation like that, I can't help but imagine you know obviously you had the feelings of being chosen because you're like you know you you came out out alive from that crash but there's also an element and of am i you know a failure or am i letting you know maybe my parents down or people down or myself down actually more importantly how how did you get yourself out of that type of headspace? Because I think a lot of people can, you know, you know, you said, you know, from that point on, you went like this, but a lot of people might go even further down. How, how did you prevent yourself from going further down and feeling like a failure and feeling like your life's over? Yeah, I think, I think to your point, like, so as a cellist, like my cello teacher would always tell me that, um, the way I perform, the reason why I need to practice, the reason why I need to like take things seriously is because I, I reflect him, I reflect uh, her, like my other child teacher. I reflect all of my, all of my mentors. And so, to your point, you know my, my mother and father, they, they, they never drank in their life. They never did none of that. And I think. To your point, um, just it is embarrassing to them for me to be doing these things that don't reflect how I raised them, how they raised me, yeah. right? And as as I've been like doing these different things um, now, obviously, there's, they're proud about a lot of things that I'm doing now, but 
um, before, like they they didn't stop me from doing what I was doing in the in the in the entertainment world, but they definitely like weren't supportive of it either. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so I would say like to your point, when after the Matthew situation, if I ever did feel relapse type moments, it was I would just remind myself of like who I am and what I stand for. Like what do I want to be known for? And so going back to so um what I was saying before I think I mentioned about like celebrating differences and celebrating being unique. Um I actually started to get it get a thrill when I would tell people that I don't drink. So like people people I'll be in a secular environment, I'll be in a club, I'll be in a restaurant, or I'll be at a finance environment or a big event, and I tell them I don't drink. And people would be like, Wow, that's that's impressive. Yeah. And then I would tell myself, like, why is that impressive? Like, why do you drink? <laughs> like people don't have like, self-control <laughs> exactly yeah exactly people don't have self-control i was like yeah. why don't people have self-control like and it, when you think about it i would actually listen to some of tony robbins stuff like a lot of the alcohol and the in the smoking all of that was created by business right they would play commercials of people smoking with music the pretty girl whatever and like that encouraged you to get through the, the, what it took in order to, to be coughing to the point to where you get to the point to where you like it, but it was all conditioning to where like when, when you hear the song, even if you're not looking at the commercial, you, it triggers good emotions and good feelings versus the opposite, right? And a lot of these, these substances, the substance abuse has, has been like pushed on us through clubs. This is another reason why I got out of clubs because I was encouraging people to spend their rent at the club every week, right? I was promoting different substances every week that didn't lead our people in the right direction. Do I like parties? Do I still like ratchetness? Yes, I do. I still like all of it. However, I also have a deep sense of responsibility where we like, part of the reason why our people are down in my opinion is because of the music and because of the mindset that it creates and the habits that it encourages, right? I actually wrote this thing in college that said, what if game bangers listen to classical music? And not just game bangers, it could be people from, you know, middle America. Like what if like, like just, the things that you listen to, the things that you want, all, all, all affect different things. And I think I've completely gone off of what your original question was now. But I would just say that in general, um, the way that I've gotten through things is just by celebrating uniqueness and recognizing that now everything that's happening in Silicon Valley that I'm noticing is a trend towards Adventism, being Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh -day Adventist. So I was born in Loma Linda, California, where people live for hundreds of years, right? They're known for being vegetarian, which is a very big thing now, right? Beyond Meat is killing it right now. Yeah. And Adventists have been at the forefront of vegetarianism for a very long time. There's a big trend towards sabbaticals and things like that. We keep the Sabbath every week. 
Jewish people do too. But like, you don't, you don't have burnout because we got that built in every single week, right? Sunday, so Friday, Sunday, so Saturday, you got the 24 hours to recover. Boom. Okay. There's a trend towards sobriety. So many people talking about being uh, like Justin Kahn talking about this, all these people like being sober curious, like it's a very big trend. Um, and most Adventists don't drink their whole life. You know, like that's just part of the culture, you know? And so I, it's, it's very interesting to see sticking to your roots coming full circle. And also uh, going back to, to the Adventist roots is just like this vocational um, um, training, which is encouraged, which I told in the story earlier, um, it's actually encouraged in elementary school and high school before college. And so long story short, um, part of what keeps me going in is the fact that if I stick to my roots, that leads me to being a more formidable player in the rapid rescaling place. And I'm able to work with my co-founders who, who are also, they also are Jewish and they, they've grown up out here and it's like we've, they've been through boot camps and we've understood things and like we don't we don't have all the same personal philosophies but that's beautiful about it because we're all aligned together towards the same mission because everybody doesn't have to believe the same thing right yeah everybody doesn't have to be the same race everybody doesn't have to be the same socioeconomic background we just got to work together uh on on advancing humanity forward so yeah anyway uh not to not to you know keep going on but i, I do want to provide value to anybody that's been in this situation. I'm curious, you know, you did talk about making it cool to, you know, feeling like, you know, making it cool to not drink, but I'm sure there were friends of yours or people that you knew that the next time they saw you at a party, they wanted to give you a shot. And then you had to tell them, you know, I'm not drinking anymore. And, and you know, in that moment, you might've felt a little self-conscious. I'm curious, you know, were, yeah. there, were there peers or friends that you, you know, you disappointed them or, or whatever? No. So I actually, so this is what I would do. Cause I, I, I love, like I said, I love to party. So like whenever I would go to the parties, what I would do, I actually wrote an article about, um, about this when I was in college as well. It was called how to order drinks if you don't drink alcohol. And essentially what I would do is I would have certain drinks that looked like drinks, so nobody would offer me drinks. So I would always get like an Arnold Palmer, right? Which looks like a, a Long Island iced tea. Um, it also looks like beer, whatever. Like nobody can bother you. Yeah. I'd also get like a Coke and a rocks glass with a lime on the side, so it looks like a Jack and Coke, right? I'd also um, sometimes get like a cranberry and Red Bull, so it looks like a mixed drink. I would also get a gin and tonic, hold the gin, right? And then like, People wouldn't bother you with that. Or I'll get a sample of, you know, those basic things. If you have those in your hand, it doesn't look like you're not drinking, you're not participating. Now, when people are trying to give you shots, um, what I would do is I would lean over to the waitress and I would tell her to fill my shot glass with water. And then whenever people are taking shots, I am participating in the shot. And then... If they do another shot, then I'd say I'll have another. If that doesn't work and they do give me a shot, the people that aren't making fun of me, I just pretend like I'm about to take the shot and then I just hand them my shot after. Yeah. I'll do it. So that's that's what's gotten me through these last 10 years and that's how I played it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, 
talk to us about what your your mindset was after graduating college and and what you were you know planning to do um my mindset after graduating college was that um i was still throwing parties i was like i was going to be the the greatest artist in the world that was my mindset um but that that accident really like was a day of reckoning i honestly didn't know what i wanted to do after college that's why i didn't have no internships um but my cousin who was a banker at um bank of america he told me about investment banking he was a corporate banker he was an investment banker and the problem with the schools that i went to was like none of them were investment bankers so like i didn't really have the access to the network to get into investment banking so um long story short i discovered a website called Merging acquisitions i discovered a program called breaking into wall street i taught myself financial modeling i sent out 1900 emails at crash career fairs got a job um in chicago as a banker i wrote all the reasons why i wouldn't get a job as a banker that led to 7000 people reaching out i helped over people 50 people get jobs as bankers um then i got a job in atlanta which is where i met my co-founder archer and his twin brother timor um none of us knew how to code they decided to do boot camps um to become engineers i bought a one way ticket to san francisco i had a place to live for a month three weeks later i found a job i wrote a story about it called breaking into startups that blew up got millions of views and um my mindset was still entrepreneurial i knew i wanted to be an entrepreneur whether it was as an artist or whatever um but in order to do that i needed to get skills first yeah um so i guess you know the experiences you had prior to starting breaking into startups you know what did you learn from them what did you take out from them um that's a good one so number 1 the way to network is to focus on bringing people together with no agenda and getting to know them on a human level so non-transactional group gathering break bread type things so like one of the first things that I did when I got to San Francisco was leverage my party stuff instead of thinking about the pretty girls or the celebrities to invite to an event when I got to San Francisco I focused on who are the celebrities of San Francisco all the VCs, all the founders, um all the operators that are well known in tech. And I would start organizing uh not parties but cool events that people always wanted to do but didn't feel like organizing them. So, um like a whitewater rafting trip or a snowmobiling trip or go-karts or a party at a club which I did do as well like stuff like that. Um and i would bring everybody together and i would make sure that the room was like i don't know if it's a smaller group like if paintballing it might be like 30 people or 50 people um if it's like a big event at a club it would be like 400 people but everybody in the room is a powerhouse but you don't know what they do you just have fun on a human level we just like we're just going to do these rapids we're going to ride these rapids today We're going to do these doom buggies today. I want to shoot you. I'm going to light you up on a paintball field, right? 
And through that process, you're going to get to know each other on a different level, right? You're going to have the barbecue after, and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to realize that these people are, are really cool. And so through that process, being the organizer or the promoter of the events, which is what I learned earlier, you start becoming the connect. And when I was in college throwing the promotions thing, um, I, I used to always tell people meet the connect or I'm the plug. Like my Mohi symbol was just a plug, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so that I always wanted to be the connector that helped people organize, which actually influenced like what we're doing with Career Karma. We're not a boot camp. We're not a trade school. We're not a college. We're not an employer. I mean, we are an employer. That's not true. We are an employer. But we're, we're not the companies that are hiring the people that are trying to be trained. We understand that boot camps come and go, trade schools come and go, colleges come and go, MOOCs come and go, but what's not going to change is workers looking for the right training, workers looking for the right people to help them get the training or get to the job that they want. And so um, as the plug or as the connector, the number one destination for career advice on the internet, um, we want to make sure that no matter what skill that you want in the future, you can come to career comma and find the people that can get you there quickly so that we can eventually become the rap, the, the category kings of the rapid reskilling movement. So I would say I learned that from, from my early days and that influence matters. And so people that we're trying to reach, which are blue collar workers, need to be inspired by people that have either a shared struggle or that can communicate in their language, which is something that I learned early on in language. And so um, that's why like figuring out how to work with influencers and celebrities and YouTubers and podcasters like yourself matters so that we can speak to them in their language. Yeah. One other, I'm not sure if you remember this, but uh, you, you know, you mentioned you sent 1900 emails the one that was successful do you do you remember like was there anything special about it or i made every email personalized so like okay. i made sure that like high level they were the same but there was always like something different about them so um the most successful thing during my outreach uh to get a job was to the lady that was running a Dang, I can't remember her name off the top of my head. There was like two ladies that were running the Sponsors for Educational Opportunity Program, which is a diversity program to get black people into, into Wall Street. But I, um, I, I was out of the loop. And so, because I was already graduated, you had to be a junior. So what she allowed me to do was set up the booth at the career fair for SEO, which is Sponsors for Educational Opportunity at Morehouse College which gave me the foot in the door to the right people I needed to meet. So I'll say that's the biggest key. And since I had talked to all those people that had responded to my emails and gave me the coaching for the interviews, when I got to the place and I told them my story, they're like, wow, that's crazy. Like walk me through a discounted cash flow analysis right now. Walk me through the three, like how much this much, how a hundred million dollars flows through the three income statements. Um, all these things, like all these questions, right? And then they gave me a shot and they, they were like, this is a weird situation, man. Like, this is <laughs> like, they gave me like 
the hardest interviews ever, but like I always had an answer and yeah. I always had the right answer. It was very, it's like that pursuit of happiness situation. I always had an answer. Um, they flew me out to Chicago. I did the super day and then I got a job as an investment banker. So I would say that was the, that was the key that gave me that shot to give me the foot in the door. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I, I deal with a lot is people not starting things. Uh, talk to me about your mindset, you know, before starting breaking into startups. It, did it originally start as a podcast or? Um, breaking and start started off as a blog, actually. Okay. Um, and the, the reason why, like I was writing blogs ever since college. Um, and my co-founders always wanted to write a blog too. Um, I had a blog that I used to have, it's no longer up, called The Social Reformer. I had another blog um, that was just, I, I had it on Posturous actually, which is pretty cool because the founder of Posturous is Gary Tan, who is now our lead investor from Initial Life. So like from college, I've been connected to Gary Tan like wow. back before 2010. Like, so, yeah. but like, when Posturous got acquired by Twitter, they weren't around anymore. So I had to move to like, um, I don't even know if he knows that. I think I got told him that. Um, but that, that, um, that went to, um, that went to, um, to, to WordPress. So I then I had a WordPress blog. And then uh, the reason why the WordPress blog was cool is because I documented my story about how I was going to break into Wall Street and how everybody was telling me it's impossible, but I was telling people, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I ended up doing that. And um, through that process, I was able to continue moving forward and forward and forward until finally I got into, um, I got into, um, to um, writing the blog post of Breaking Into Startups, which led into the second blog post about Archer Timor and I, um, and called the reality of breaking into startups. And then um, that led to the podcast, which led to a bunch of other things. But the reason why this goes back to things that I learned, um, I was so into writing and podcasts and things like that is because personal brand is important. And going back to being an artist or a rapper or a singer or a cellist or whatever, you are the personal brand. Like when I was in Chicago, I was on the auxiliary board for the Joffrey Ballet. And you have to promote yourself. If you are a Victoria's Secret model or IG model, I don't care who you are, like you have to promote yourself. You are your own business, right? Yeah. And at the end of the day, an artist um, is, is successful if they have a thousand true fans. Like the classic blog post about a thousand true fans um, where they spend about $100 on your product. And so um, I think I answered your question. So, yeah. A lot of people don't want to start, you know, podcasts or things of that nature because they're not getting paid. Can you talk about what your mindset was and and maybe talk about, you know, how, how did you get over, you know, at the start, not getting paid or things of that nature? So I think people have to understand returns in general, right? And like what social capital really means and like how to build like currency positive like positive energy currency that like isn't money right and there's a really good movie called end time that talks about this um it's a world where money doesn't exist 
and the only thing that you can exchange is time. The rich people got nothing but time and the poor people are always running out of it. Um, in the movie, the rich people definitely got more time because of privilege and a bunch of other stuff. But like sometimes the reason why people have more time is because of the way that they use their time. Right? And because they understand compound interest and things like that. And the reason why I bring this up is just because I think more people should, it's going to sound like a tangent, should play games like Catan versus Monopoly, um, two board games, because Monopoly is very like money driven. And if you're not winning, then like you're probably losing. But with Catan, money doesn't exist. It's all resources, it's a barter system. And there's always a way to win that encourages communication, collaboration, really understanding resources and scarcity and, and things that have nothing to do with like money. But it does have to do with resources and time allocation and how you do things like that. So um, going back to your question, I think that studying opportunity costs and like the returns that you can get from investing your time into something, whether that's a course, whether that's into a person, whether that's into a company or whatever matter, whether that's into a podcast matters. And so um, the biggest differentiator with, um, with one podcast versus another, honestly, is not the quality of the podcast. It's just consistency and just consistently dropping it all the time. And it's very similar with, with, a startup, like just being constantly shipping something and iterating on it and testing it until it eventually turns into like what you want it to be. Um, and it hits that watership moment. And I would say that um, making sure that like, like being paid for things always doesn't, is not, it shouldn't be your approach. I think what you should be iterating for is the fastest rate of learning the faster acquisition of a network. So for example, with you right now, right, doing this podcast, you're able to talk to someone like me. I'm not saying that in a me versus you type of thing, but like I have a pretty cool network. Yeah, yeah. And if there's questions that you want to know, I'll probably tell them to you, which is like game that I might not share with nobody else. Because honestly, in this podcast, you've asked me questions that nobody else has ever asked me. And I've done a lot of podcasts. Right. Yeah. That might be helpful for somebody. That might be helpful for you. That's yeah. a game that you could apply to yourself. You never know what's going to be. Um, and you can literally create your own education just by like organizing a bunch of interviews with people that you want to be like. Yeah. You know. And over time, once you have an audience, you could charge. You could create different things to to. And and we are moving into a creator economy. And so, um, that wasn't a direct answer, but that's my answer. No, no, that works. And um, so talk to us now about the the start of Career Karma, how you, uh, you know, thought of the idea and then what was the incentive to, to make it a reality? Yeah, I mean, Career Karma is a product we wish that we had when we were breaking into tech. Um, the, the driver for it was the pain that we experienced trying to get into tech ourselves, going through boot camps and figuring this thing out. And the motivation was, wow, there are these job training programs that teach you how to get high paying jobs, making seventy two hundred thousand dollars or more in less than a year. 
what would happen if millions of people knew about this? There's people hurting right now. Like in the U.S. alone in 2020, there was like over 55 million people that filed for unemployment. What if they knew how to break into tech? Like even if a thousand people get a job in tech this year making a hundred thousand dollars, that's a billion dollar impact, right? 55 million. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about trillions of impact. Yeah. Big deal. And that's not even the entire world. Like the entire world has thrilled 3 billion people in the workforce. 2 billion of them are blue collar. It's massive, massive opportunities, you know? And so um, as we've been doubling down on these types of things, um, I would say um, the podcast started to be the catalyst that we can do something with it where um, people that were listening to the podcast that we started about people breaking the tech led to um, led to people asking how to get jobs in tech. So we created a chat by that would point people to the teaching programs for the jobs that they want, uh, which also led to schools asking to pay money to get access to our networks, um, which led to us understanding how much money is spent to get enrollments, which led to one of my mentors encouraging me to quit my job to apply to Y Combinator, which led to getting rejected from Y Combinator, which led to raising money, which led to applying again to Y Combinator, getting in, raising money, and then getting to where we are today. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious to, um, you know, you have two other co-founders. You know, how did you choose those two people? Or how, how did it come about? You know, what was, you know, because that's a, a very important, the founder's relationship is incredibly important to the success of a company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the so say that one more time. You know, the, you, my co-founders. Yeah, yeah. The other two co-founders. You know, how did you guys end up choosing each other? You know, um, because that that's an important step. You know, in terms of all of you sort of being on the same page and and things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, we we call ourselves triplets fraternal, um, and I like that because. Um, I like that because we were friends first before we're business partners and we have something that ties us deeper than money. Um, and I think that's super important to understand whenever you're choosing co-founders because you're inevitably going to get a passionate, um, discussions or debates. Um, and for us, it was important for us to recognize that like, we are nothing without each other. And that if we want to ultimately help a lot of people, we have to keep that story alive. And I think um, the fact that we, we, we met in Atlanta, we did hackathons together, we invested in Bitcoin together, we, we did a bunch of things together um, that, really, that really helped us a lot. Talk to us about some of the early lessons as a, you know, I mean, obviously you had run businesses before, but this is on a, you know, this is a different scale as, you know, you've raised money, you've got investors that you have to, um, you know, report to, you know, this is now um, for the three of you, this is your full-time careers. Were there some early growing pains that you, you learned from? Um, with, our, with my co-founders? 
just just with the business in general i'm curious if uh i think um i think it's important to focus on revenue and, and managing your brand properly i think giving out mon- monthly updates is a good idea i think um yeah being very clear on conflict resolution is important so that you you can focus on growing a business and not stupid arguments which we don't do those anymore that but like in maybe like the first like 30 days of starting the company like we had to figure that out early on. Um, I think um, learning how to stay focused on what you're working on and not get distracted from all the opportunities that you could be going into. Um, and then, um, and then um, now to where we are now, you know, I think, I think that's, I think staying focused, even, even now, like there's so many directions that we can go, but um, we're, we're doing the, we're doing, the right thing to just staying focused on what we've always been focused on. Yeah. I guess, you know, for the, for the people that might still be confused about, you know, what, what exactly you guys do, maybe uh, talked about, talk to them about who could use this service. Who's, who's the ideal person uh, to, to use this service and how they can use it. Yeah. So, um, the, the best way to start is to go to careercomer.com slash apply. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a good place to start. I think the other thing um, that um, the second, uh, there's part of, part, of, part of your question got cut out, so I didn't hear that last part. I'm just curious, you know, um, for people out there listening that might be interested, you know, what... Um, how do they determine if, if this is the right step for them? Yeah, so I think if you are someone that isn't happy in what you're doing, that's important because part of what we're doing is like making sure that people are doing what they love. If you are someone that um, is looking for flexibility so you can also um, spend time with your family and uh, get paid a wage that you have always deserved. I think that's uh, that's important. And if you want to be part of a community of other people that understand you and that have been through what you've been through, um, I would I would say those are the the driving factors for joining the career karma community. And you can do that by going to careercomma.com/apply, and we will help you get a job in three to twelve months. What are, what are the challenges for the business right now? Biggest challenge is we have a lot of demand and we have a lot of schools that want to work with them and making sure that our software scales with the growth. Um, and so that's why we're hiring um, product managers and people like that, that can help us with that scaling thing now. Yeah. Can you also talk about the, the income share agreement? Cause I think that um, is terrific, you know, mm-hmm. especially for someone, you know, who might have, you know, not gone to college or, or, or something like that. Um, or even if you did go to college, I mean, it doesn't really matter. That's, that's a terrific um, aspect of, of the service. So 
Yeah. So one of the things that I think is is cool about the program is the income share agreement, um, because it doesn't put you know a lot of upfront cost to the individual wanting to join. So can right. you just speak to that um, for people um, that might want to join? Yeah. So an income share agreement is essentially a promise to get you a job above a certain salary. And if you don't get a job, you don't have to pay anything. So the reason why that is super important is because um, you don't have to pay for, for a tuition up front or take out a loan. Essentially, um, you can explore um, a program. And if it doesn't work out for you and you don't get a job, you don't pay anything. Uh, so yeah. um, a lot of people already got student loans. Student loans run like 1.7 trillion. Uh, type of a range and um, a lot of people don't have the greatest credit. Um, some programs uh, won't allow you to do an income share agreement if you have bad credit, some of them will. And so that's why it's very important for you to just kind of like let us know what your situation is so we can match you with the right training program that could get you to where you want to go. Um, but long story short, there's zero excuse why you can't get a job in tech. It just comes down to a matter of like, do you really want to put in the work to do this or not, period. Yeah. Uh, one last question that I had was, I'm curious, you know, in terms of managing people, um, how has that been? And do you have any tips to people uh, on that? Yeah, when it comes to managing people, I think, um, I think, like, for myself, like, something that's a guiding principle for me is um, take more of your share of the blame and less of the credit. And so I work for my people and I try to hire people that are leaders themselves. I'm not a big micromanager. I like to, um, like if we're having conversations, it's about how to help you get unblocked. It's how to help you get more resources in order to do your job better. Or it's like a strategic conversation about different decisions that we want to make. Um, and then figuring out how to make sure that all the work that we're doing together is being communicated to the respective teams, members of the team that we need to be working with in order to hit our ultimate business objectives. So that's, that's what I would say is, is a big deal for me. Um, awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, final question, uh, future of, of the company and what you, what you hope for. Um, yeah, I think for this year, we want to get to the point where, um, you know, we, we go beyond just matching people to boot camps and trade schools and colleges and um, really start evolving the platform to something that's just bigger than a boot camp matching platform and something that engages people after they are enrolled in a program um, so that people are constantly receiving value from the app and the people that have value to share, whether it's a trade school, a boot camp or college, a company an individual, a, a government, a nonprofit, they're able to share that, that advice with individuals that they're trying to reach. So that's, that's my main focus. Awesome. Uh, Ruben, I, I just want to thank you so much for being on. It was, it was awesome uh, to, to get to meet you and, and to learn about your journey. Um, and I, I just want to say on a personal level, it's, um, you know, it's really inspiring to see how you didn't let, you know, your situation with alcohol define your life. Cause, cause for many people um, that might've defined their entire life and, and their, the way they ended up going after that. But um, through the help of, 
you know, friends like Matthew and, and yourself, most importantly, um, you've really been able to tap into, uh, you know, a market and create a business that's very much needed, as we talked about with the unemployment situation. And with, you know, we didn't end up talking about this, but the amount of um, employment opportunities that go unfilled um, in the tech world. Um, if there was anything else that you want to say um, that, that I didn't ask you, feel free to talk about it. Um, I would just say that, like, like you said, get started. The sooner the better. Um, there is a huge tech tidal wave that's coming. Um, like, that's definitely driven by COVID-19, but also, like, with the change in administration, with the whole GameStop power to the players movement against, like, the people versus Wall Street, um, with um, the rise of communities, um, with the fact that there's over a billion iPhones um, in, the, in, in the world now that Apple had its $100 billion quarter. And this is the first time in history where you can create something that reaches billions of people. Um, Elon Musk is going to be on Clubhouse tonight at 10 o'clock. And you know, people think about SpaceX, but SpaceX isn't just about colonizing Mars. It's about launching satellites to space to create Starlink and global connectivity, which is going to connect the entire world, which currently half the world is not connected. Once we reach global internet connectivity, it's game on. Not game over, game on. And people are, are already hurting and but there's a lot of opportunities. So like, if you can ride this wave instead of getting hit by it, you will win. But if you don't, you're gonna just be further behind. Take advantage of this quarantine moment, download the Career Karma app, go to careerkarma.com slash apply. I know it sounds like a shameless plug, but we truly wanna help a billion people in 10 years so that uh, we can give you that surfboard and, and make sure that you ride on this thing. Awesome. And if people want to follow you, um, do you want to just let them know how to do that? Yep. It's Ruben Harris on everything. R-U-B-E-N-H-A-R-R-I-S on Twitter, on Clubhouse, on Instagram, on Snapchat. I don't use Snapchat that much, but just Ruben Harris, everything. Awesome. Thank you, so Thank you so much. Thank you so much for uh, being on. Thank you, bro. Peace. Appreciate it.